You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Thompson. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is the city's largest and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting the work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space, including Ingen Jorgensen, Brenda Sirioni, Daniel Corey, Jill Hoy, and Dave Allen. For complete show details, please visit our website at artcollectormain.com. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. Bowdoin College student Hannah Cook is the founder of the Bowdoin Athletes of Color Coalition, which brings together student athletes of color to discuss their experiences of playing sports. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you for having me. So at least for today, this is not a long um, travel for you because you were born and raised in the city. No, it should have probably been shorter if I could find parking. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, this, the whole snow thing is kind of throwing us off a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. But you've lived in Maine a long time, so you know it's like snow on the city streets, right? Oh, absolutely. But I did live mostly outside of the city growing up, so snow on the streets was not as much of a problem uh, yes. <laughs> because we had driveways. But um, yeah, snow is definitely familiar. <laughs> well, tell me about that. Tell me about growing up here in Maine. Um, well, so... To be honest, now going to Bowdoin, I've thought way more about my experience growing up in Maine. Um, I grew up kind of like North Deering area, so kind of like suburbia, very predominantly white. And for most of my education, career, childhood, I was one of the few people, one of the only people of color in my class until middle school. I think I was the only one. Um, and growing up, I don't think that had at first really... Um, made a huge I wasn't thinking about it really I think the first time that I actually thought about being like different was when I was in the third grade um I we were playing like manhunt or something and I remember there was a comment made about me being a person of color and like um not wanting me like on a specific team and I was like pretty shocked because I had never even thought about like how like my race would be significant in any kind of way I didn't even like really think about being different um and I think that the response from a lot of the kids was, I mean, for no, not knowing much about race, um, was like, what? Like, that sounds crazy, but no one really knew how to articulate anything. And that experience for me was like the first time I started to think about um, my race growing up because I did live in such a white neighborhood um, and my family is biracial. So my mom's also from rural Maine um, and my dad's from Jamaica. So it's a very interesting cultural mix within my house. But then I didn't realize how different that was um, comparatively. But I think growing up for me, um, actually sports became a place for me to um, kind of move beyond what I think now is like was a feeling of a little bit being different in a lot of ways. And it was a place where there was no talk um, that could like really 
it's it's hard to explain. I've still tried to articulate it. A lot of my actual academic career has been me like soul searching for like to understand my childhood and like how I've like gotten to the place where I am. Um, but I think that I had a tough time fitting in with um, my neighborhood and not just because of my race, but I do think just like culturally coming from the family I did um, was extremely open-minded and not to say that other people were not open-minded, but um, I don't think there was a recognition of like what it meant to be like a person of, like a woman of color too, like a girl who was black in a white space, which is, you know, gender has such a role in it too and how that influences how you're perceived. And again, not articulating this at that age growing up, but I think that sports was a place for me to kind of feel like nothing else beyond um, my feeling of almost otherness at times really mattered and couldn't there, like, there was nothing someone could say that could take away from me beating them so I became extremely extremely competitive and I was always competitive but I think that sports was a very special um, space for me growing up to kind of move beyond all those other things and find a kind of like way to empower myself by working hard and then being successful and then having that it became a big part of my identity but that also did change a lot in when I went to school. Um, but yeah, I think growing up in Maine though was a great experience, like um, very safe and certainly a lot of communities, different communities that I felt very a part of. Um, and a lot of them were connected to sports, I think. Another thing I think about, I used to, I played basketball and soccer growing up. And soccer is a completely different demographic of people compared to basketball. And I think that I ended up choosing basketball, actually, and I was pretty successful at both of them and very competitive with both. But um, when I got older, I started to feel a little bit more like basketball was this, was the sport that I loved more. But now when I look back, I feel like basketball was actually a space where I just felt more connected with the people who I was playing with um, and through my independent research project um, which was on race and gender in sport in American sports specifically not really focused on culture of sports and how that culture is a reflection of where like class attitudes and where people are coming from with their experiences outside of it they bring in those values and that creates a kind of culture and expectations on a different team and I felt, I think, more connected because there were so many people of color playing basketball, especially in Portland, where there actually is that community. Those communities do exist more than outside of Portland. Um, and so that, in my mind, I chose basketball because that's what I wanted to play. But I think so much more of it had to do with the people that I was surrounded by and how I felt just a little bit more like I could connect with people on a different way that I didn't always have um, growing up like a lot younger um, in my community. But I definitely lived a privileged life and I'm very grateful for all that I had growing up. Um, but when you're forced to think about like who you become um, and like how your life experiences did shape you. I think that um, I certainly was shaped by being one of the few people and a few girls of color, especially in my class um, growing up. What was your intention when you founded the Bowdoin Athletes of Color Coalition? What, what were you trying to do? So 
I'm not exactly positive I knew what I was trying to do. Um, it was a kind of variety of things that kind of came together at the right time. Um, one of my best friends um, was a leader on our stu student athletic committee, and she had heard about this program that Tufts was doing, um, which is an athletes of color group as well. And it was at the same time I was doing my research project and really like engaging with these issues at a much deeper level. Um, and then I started, because of the, uh, my research project, thinking about, again, how sports had influenced my own life growing up and what kind of purpose if it had served for me. And then how that purpose, um, it changes the whole demographic of who you are teammates with and who that community is changes when you get to college, especially at an elite institution such as Bowdoin, um, where there's probably a smaller um, proportion of even people of color on the athletic teams, which is ironic considering um, most people there in across the nation, um, a lot of people of color do play sports, um, even in Maine. Um, but also, Bowdoin is 90% from out of state. So um, I was curious as to how that change in demographic um, changed people's experiences, how it changed the culture of the sport because my research prior had said to me that um, basically all of those different ident intersecting identities had contributed to creating a particular culture and that had attracted me to it but then what happens when that culture changes for other people too like for myself I was like okay the I was my freshman year I was the only person of color on my basketball team which was one of the first times that had ever happened to me, even being someone from Maine. So I thought, well, how does that um, change how the culture had been created on my college team? And was that significant in any way? Um, and then I thought, well, my change, you know, being from someone who's very familiar with predominantly white places and communities, I thought that if there was any like I had thought about it being challenging in different ways for me than for someone who was going to in even like more different significant in significant ways the demographics um, team for example I had a friend who was from Georgia and played soccer and he was on a team that was almost all black and now he's on a team that's almost all white so how does that change his experience or their experience um, because it's such an intimate space and you work your whole life, a lot of people do in college, to be good at that one place and you have a particular kind of community that you're used to supporting you or being around and having those relationships. And you know, a team, you don't choose your relationships and a lot of times we get so lucky to meet the people that we do, um, but it's also, it's not, you don't choose those people who are on your team, they're chosen for you. So it changes the dynamics of the relationships. And I wanted to see if that had any impact on how people adapted to not only a new school, which has an entirely different culture in itself, but then also a team where you spend so much time and a lot of intimate relationships are formed. Like how did that influence how those relationships were formed and how people dealt with challenges? I know there are a lot of affinity groups at Bowdoin and I had been to some of the meetings and, and realized that it was the way that sometimes conflict was dealt with, whatever kind of, you know, wherever that falls on the spectrum of microaggression to macroaggressions, but 
a lot of times it's easier for other people to just avoid the situation or to just not be friends with people or that you know who kind of rub them the wrong way um and that is just not the same with being on a team and it's like a beautiful opportunity to help people learn and to like coexist with people who you're not used to being around um but it also requires a different way to deal with conflict. And sometimes that can be challenging and isolating if you're on a team that is so different than what you're used to being on. And the same thing with coaches, having coaches that come from different places, different people to look up to, um, or who understand or perceive you and you how you act just differently. Um, and I never really think that it's like a malicious thing. I think that at Bowdoin across the board, there's so um, much willingness and very little like malicious intent that ever happens with when adversity arises. <clears throat> but at the same time, that is not an excuse to not learn from things that do make other people feel other and different um, and isolated at times. So. I knew that if I, again, was having some kind of um, experience that was challenging to me, especially coupled with learning, trying to learn so much about like my history and like America's history, a part of America's history, which I feel like is not taught in schools until you seek it out like college. I did not go into college thinking I was going to be in Africana studies as one of my majors. and. As I took a couple, I took like one class because my advisor begged me to because I said I might be interested in it. And from then I've just been, it's it's had such an impact on my life because I feel like there's so much more that I know about not only myself, but about other people and how they interpret and perceive other people and other situations in different communities that they're not necessarily from. So with that, just a perfect storm and um, I decided that I was going to talk to the athletic director about starting some kind of group to get people to perhaps explore um, and self-reflect on their own experiences and that's initially how it began and then um, it had I got a lot of great feedback from people who started to join the group and then I knew it was important um, because so many people had expressed that this was a space that they didn't know that they needed, as I don't think I did initially, um, but then was very valuable to have um, to kind of throw out feelings that you've had or um, questions about certain experiences that you're not necessarily sure how to articulate in that moment um, or even long term and sometimes you look back and you're just like okay I actually think that this has had an impact on me or I would like to change x y and z and then to have a group of people who can share those experiences or relate to them is really meaningful and not feeling like you know kind of that whole sense of otherness um, and from there working with um, the athletic director and creating programs and initiatives to work on making those feelings happen less um, and to get teams and coaches um, and individuals just more self-aware of how they create culture on their team and how they create those relationships and how to like recognize that be, maybe you are an athlete you know on the court on the field um, on the rink, wherever it may be, but you're still like your identity as a person of color doesn't change. Um, 
and same with gender that has to do with it it doesn't change when you're playing and then when you're outside of the sport you don't always lose the things that you're dealing with when you come onto the court and um or again whatever space it may be and I think my freshman year um that became really significant uh something very significant that I had thought about and like there was um a lot of police brutality instances that happened with young people um and I had actually I had gotten pulled over in Brunswick and I got out of the car um, because apparently there was this whole <laughs> fiasco. I apparently had missed, um, I got a speeding ticket. <laughs> I'm not really proud about that, but it wasn't that bad. Um, but I had gone away, I went to a boarding school. And so I we had missed some like payment that had, it was like a five, like some really small fee for the court fee that we just didn't, I didn't see the mail because I was away and like my mom owns her own business. So she was, didn't see the, the piece of mail. If it came, we're not really sure. We weren't notified about it afterwards. And so my license had been suspended and had no idea. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I never break rules. <laughs> I'm like, I'm really so sorry. I had no idea. Um, but then um, the police officer had asked to take pictures of me because he didn't want me to sue him for beating him, for be for saying that I had been beaten by him. And so that was like, and I'm like, I'm biracial, so I'm actually like relatively light, which is a whole nother <laughs> identity that you can get into at a different time. Um, but I was very just taken aback by, oh my gosh, like this person sees me as someone who's capable of um, accusing him of doing harm to me just because of like I was a person of color and at that time um, people of color were all, all across you know cities were having trouble with cops um, and I have no natural animosity towards cops but I think that that experience and then going back to my teammates um, I did not know how to to talk about that with them um, because I didn't think that anyone would know where I was coming from um, and I think that I had mentioned it to one or two teammates and the kind of the responses like was something like, wow, I can't believe that happened. But that was like kind of it. And so that was tough. And I kind of and that was my freshman year. I didn't even do this till my junior year. But that was an experience that resonated with me as being something um, like my teammates are my closest friends and that's a very intimate space and that would be those would be the people that I would want to like maybe talk to about something like that and um, I didn't know how to and so I thought you know like that was an extreme example but there's got to be um, other people who are having different experiences in and outside of their team that impact how they are how they like how present they are um, and how they talk about or deal with different challenges on that team as well. One of the things that you mentioned was um, the idea of not being able to avoid conflict. And you've used the word intimate space when it comes to playing sports. And I think that that's absolutely the case that you're on a court, say if you're in basketball and you're in a locker room, I mean, and whether it's your teammate or the opposite, a member of the opposite team, I mean, you can't avoid facing this person. But this is the way that we have dealt with conflict, I think, fairly consistently for quite a while in this country, is to just pretend that it doesn't exist. Yeah. And, yeah. and maybe marginalize people that we don't agree with. 
how do conversations about that happen in your group? I mean, how, how do you talk about actually having to face this conflict and not run away? Um, yeah, so my opinion is also not, I'm gonna be representative of everyone else's, but um, we talk about this a lot. A lot of our meetings are kind of like dialogue like in the sense that I tend to be a facilitator because I do facilitations outside of that's like one of my jobs um, on campus Um, but I tend to run them similarly to that and getting people to be like reflective of how they deal with those um, those instances of adversity or awkwardness and um, we talk through it and I think that everyone has different ways that they deal with things based off their team and how what level um, in the relationship they are with people who this is happening with I think power dynamics go into it too with people like coaches um, being from a family that is very diverse naturally just in itself um, I personally am of the p- opinion that um, having one-on-one conversations is really um, beneficial um, because I find that very often it is not um, a malicious intended comment or um, instance that happens and I think that bringing people calling people um, in instead of calling people out um, has been a really effective way and it's hard for some people to do that because it's just it is hard because once you acknowledge that someone made you uncomfortable there's no going back and that for some people is really um it's it's easier to just not deal with that person or um to say you know what like this person is just like too politically correct to like for me to be around but um for me i think that um if i if those relationships are really worth Um, it for me and for those people then the work will be put in and they will be okay with that Um, it doesn't always work out perfectly and I think that that is one thing that I try to encourage people to look beyond in the group it's like it's not your whatever you say and how you feel it's not always going to come out clean and smooth and and really understandable for that person um but by mentioning it and by engaging people in those conversations, especially in an intimate setting that's not even like within like the whole group, um, it does create a space for conversation to happen and for you to to be seen and validated. And I think that sometimes it's there is so much fear that you're gonna say something that makes someone else feel uncomfortable or hurt. But the fact of the matter is, is that there was a reason that you needed to say that in the first place, and that's because you also felt some type of way, hurt in some way, and that's what. And so it's like, what's more or less important? Would you rather um, deal with not, you know, with with being hurt and feeling ostracized, or would you rather challenge someone in your life who you trust or um, or love that to do better? And um, I think by also like challenging someone else to do better, it's more a sign that you believe that they can do it. And that's whenever I kind of engage with friends that I'm like, okay, like I just wanna like kind of address this um, particular thing, which again is very difficult to do. But I always start with the reason I'm having this conversation, like the reason I'm like even saying anything is because I know this wasn't your intent and I know that like as my friend you wouldn't want me to feel this way and so 
like this is why I'm saying it and I believe that you can do better and it's not um, supposed to undermine your character or or really label you as a racist or sexist person it's just I need to tell you that this is how it made me feel and I know that wasn't your intention and how people respond to that um, again changes um, but I really do believe that if people um, really do value your relationship that they're going to listen and I think listening is the hardest part and really hearing what someone has to say um, but by not having those conversations I always feel like it it just doesn't help anyone because that other person who said x y and z can continue to do say those things or um those incidents can keep happening and then the other person does feel isolated or um or ostracized and i think that people are much more willing than we might always give credit for um to engage with these kinds of hard topics um because people on both sides are scared. And I think acknowledging that fear from both sides is also really valuable. Yeah, I don't really know how to express this. This is how this made me feel. It's not about you. It's just about this is why this made me feel this way. And this kind of, I don't want this to like change our relationship. I just want us to be able to build a stronger relationship. And if you don't address those things, it's hard, it's impossible to build strong relationships with individuals anywhere in or outside of a team if you're not willing to be honest about how you feel. So. I was recently on an elevator in a hotel here in the city of Portland and um, a person of color got on the elevator with us and um, we both um, live here in Maine, we're, mo we're not of color, my significant other and I, mm -hmm. he, he and I are both from Maine. The person of color, we asked him, where are you from? And just thinking we're on an elevator in yeah. the city of Portland, so he's probably from somewhere else, and he probably assumes we're from somewhere else. And I got this distinct impression from the way that he said back to us, well, I'm from Philadelphia, but I live here now that mm -hmm. he felt offended that we thought because he was of color, obviously he can't be from Maine because Maine is so white. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted a do-over of that conversation because I really, I just wanted to say, it's not because you're of color. Mm -hmm. We just wonder where, where are you from? You know, yeah. like, but I had just had a conversation with someone about race who had said, it is those small things that are said that can make people feel like others. And it's not even intended. Yeah. But it's exactly what you've said, that we don't understand that what might come across to somebody as completely innocuous in one circumstance, in a different circumstance, can feel really painful. Yeah. I think that also it's an open-mindedness um, and understanding of where people are coming from on both sides. I do a lot of work with kids and who are working on these kinds of issues in Maine especially um, and a lot of times I, I hear people say that they're you know that they're too tired or it's like a lot to engage with someone and um, like there's always this kind of not always but there's a lot of times I, I hear like in a, like people are tired and I try to like encourage people to like look at where other people are coming from and to recognize that 
you need to understand that it's not maliciously intended and that have that openness and to have someone engage back and be like okay yeah like I'm from da 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 and like while that might feel like some people are going to perceive that in one way um not everyone is and at the same time try like I try to encourage everybody to just be a little bit more open-minded about where people are coming from and recognizing that it's not that is not the you know always the intention and it might feel like sometimes that it's you know kind of part of like systematic you know issues but I do think that both sides could do better both sides as if this is a two-sided issue it's not it's um, so many different people are involved um but people like that didn't have to you know it's it's tough to like you know kind of break it down and it's sometimes you can't avoid those feelings depending who you are but at the same time as I live my own life I try to think about those those kinds of small situations as like not an initial you know like not to assume that that was the intent um but that can be hard for people from different places communities too and having it happen more or less often but um it's hard with strangers too you know because yeah do-over could be better or could not but maybe you know having that person react in that way like now you've you are now gonna not engage that way the next time you see someone so um not saying that was even at all bad but I'm just saying that now like having those interactions with people and like feeling like maybe something else was going on that's still something that you're not gonna forget and I think that as long as people are like trying to be open and that that willingness is there that's what's most important to me um at Bowdoin and outside of Bowdoin is that people are just like willing to listen and willing to acknowledge that people do feel different sometimes and like how can they do better next time and I, we don't know how that person actually felt but the fact that you in your in your heart were like I want to do better next time like that is already in itself growth and that's an open-mindedness that like a lot of people it would benefit to, to have. It's also understandable that someone would get tired of this yeah. after a while. I mean, to be constantly feeling as if you are somehow not, yeah. somehow another. I mean, and get tired of having to explain this to people. And it's, I, I would get tired of it if it were me. Yeah. I think that one of the most shocking things about and for people when they hear where I'm from, they they do not believe I'm from Maine. I've never ever had anyone say, "Oh, I mean, yeah, you're you're a Mainer." Like, "Oh, I think I see you as a Mainer." Never. It's always, "I can't believe you're from Maine." And for me, <laughs> I just have fun with it now. I'm like, "Why? Is it because I'm black?" And it's really funny because a lot of times people don't even think that that's what they're thinking, but sometimes it is. And it's not, I don't take it offensively because I do understand I come from an extremely white state, but no one ever assumes that I am from Maine, ever. But then I'm like, well, why, why do you think that way? And I think that also that's a really great way to engage people in their conversation and kind of have them check themselves is to ask those questions, like where those questions come from. And so if that's posed to me, where like I'm surprised that you're from Maine I didn't wouldn't have thought that it's why are you surprised and so that's again not trying to be like accusatory which I think sometimes can get people to like cramp up and not want to have these um, conversations but 
to get people to think about why they do think certain things. Well, I appreciate you're taking time out of your very busy life. I know that you're in your uh, final year, and um, I'm sure that what you end up doing after you leave Bowdoin will continue to um, lead you down interesting paths. I also appreciate the fact that you have founded the Bowdoin Athletes of Color Coalition at Bowdoin College, my alma mater. Um, I think what you're doing is important, so I appreciate it. I've been speaking with Bowdoin College student Hannah Cook. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Maine Magazine, Aristel, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music are by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producers are Paul Koenig and Brittany Cost. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.